Hi, everybody. Welcome to the first episode of Pod for the Pubs. I'm here with Ann Vargas. She's a marketing manager at DeGroyter, and we are up here on the 10th floor of the Anson Building at Emerson College. We are just surrounded by books and magazines, and we have a beautiful view of the Boston Commons. So I'm feeling pretty literary. I don't know about you, Anne, but I'm ready to have some literary conversations. And just uh, speaking about DeGroyter, do you want to just tell us a little bit about what the company does? Hi, John. It's very nice to see you again. And thank you so much for having me. Um, It's so nice to be back here at the Anson Lounge and just, you know, get an opportunity to talk about what I do. I really appreciate that. Uh, So basically, I'm a marketing manager for the partner program at DeGroyter Publishing. Um, And you might be wondering what the partner program is. Well, DeGroyter Publishing is um, a 300-year-old publishing house. It's headquartered in Berlin, um, and they do primarily academic books. And the partner program was an initiative that started in Boston in 2012. Um, It's where we partnered with the university presses of several prestigious universities um, and we started with Harvard University Press in the beginning and basically what we do is we handle their ebook marketing and distribution. Now that's where I come in and I basically help all of these university presses with their ebook distribution, ebook marketing. my job is to basically create a lot of sales for them. And why so? Because um, most of these university presses, they're not equipped to deal with ebooks. They don't have a digital platform or they don't have the kind of technology that it requires or they don't have enough sales representatives you know, out there just selling ebooks. Um, and most of the time, they even have trouble breaking even with their print book sales. So that's where we come in and we take over their ebook distribution and we basically just do a lot of campaigns for the kind of subject areas that they have. And all of these university presses, you know, they have like thousands of years of research and studies and it's just so important and like they just don't have the platform to put it out there, you know, to spread their research despite any geographical or like language barriers. They just don't have that kind of technology. And so we do it for them. So that's basically my job, just creating a lot of campaigns, um, subject area related campaigns or um, anything that will really help sell their eBooks and that sets each university press apart from um, every other university presses. Now the partner program has expanded to include 25 university presses um, and it's all around the world. And unlike other aggregators um, like JSTOR or ProQuest or um, eBrary, what we do is basically sustain these university presses. That's our core mission. And because of that, we give back 70% of the profit back to these university presses and we only take 30%. So yeah, I I really like what I'm doing right now and I feel that it's something that brings in a lot of value and a lot of virtue to this job, you know, knowing that I'm out there really helping these university presses gain numbers, that's that's really satisfying to me. Yeah. So that's in a nutshell, that's what I do. Well, I found that super interesting, but I'm curious because I'm a person whose experience mainly lies in general interest in adult trade books, especially in uh, print. So the fact that this is with electronic publishing exclusively and with university presses, both of which I only have 
experience in academically. I've never worked with them. I'm curious because as far as I know, I do know that electronic books are a main source of revenue for a lot of publishing, but university presses I know already don't get quite as much traction as a general interest book, of course. So I'm wondering how this is sort of justified to have an entire partnership and employees that specialize in electronic publishing for these university presses. Like, how are your numbers? Does this, um, are you guys successful enough where it does make a sort of difference? Mm -hmm. Um, I'm curious also, I know you guys have been around for 300 years, but I'm not sure how long the paid partnership program has been Mm -hmm. around. So do you guys have data and a history of really changing Mm -hmm. the game for university presses? Um, So if you just want to speak a bit about how this electronic and university press marketing is different from general interest print Mm -hmm. and... As far as I knew, this sounds like such a niche topic that I'm, I was, I'm frankly surprised that there's an entire organization dedicated to it. So you just want to speak a little bit about how that came to be and really where that need comes from. Yeah, John, um, of course. So let me answer your question in, with a twofold answer. Uh, the first being, yes, the Publisher Partner Program has been very popular since the time that it started. We started in 2012, um, and the first partner that we signed was Harvard University Press, and they we only had like a three-year contract with them. Uh, but ever since then, they've been going strong with us, and we currently have 25 publishing partners, uh, the majority of them being university presses. Um, and we also have few subject-oriented uh, libraries in in Europe, uh, mostly the majority of them being like multilingual matters, um, and we have Corge Press uh, and a couple of them Academic Studies Press, which is actually based in Brookline. Uh, but the majority of them is university presses, and we try to focus on their content. Um, and yes, um, while I do think that uh, it does bring about the question of print cannibalization, um, if we're trying to push ebooks out there, you know, I do understand that that concern comes into the matter. But the fact of the matter is that university presses have a hard time breaking even just with print books. You know, that's the case that's happening with Stanford University Press right now. Stanford University Press is under a debt of $1.5 million, and the the new director is actually thinking of closing down the university press as a whole. And that's like thousands of jobs that's gone, and not to mention the, you know, the many, many years of research and studies and all that academic knowledge that's in those university presses. Like, that's just, that's gone. That's That's out of there. And that's where we come in and we're trying to give them a number and revenue that they don't have. And like I mentioned before, unlike the other aggregators, our core mission is to sustain these university presses. So the majority of the sales, more than 50%, we give them, we give it back to them because we want to sustain these university presses. And so the publisher partner program is giving them a revenue that they never had before. And because of that, I think I can confidently say that this program has been amazing. And for the, for the, for the majority of the time, there's always been a lot of, a lot a bridge between university presses and the libraries or institutions where they try to sell these content to. This is where I feel the Greuter of the partner program has an edge because we come up with so many library and university friendly business models that basically caters to both the parties and basically just creates sales. 
And so because of that, I'd like to think that, well, not not that I just like to think, but the numbers show that we're doing a good job. Our business models includes, um, we give, we recently just launched a new business model called the University Press Library. And I was, um, I played quite a bit of a role in there. Um, and I was happy to, because it's one of the business models that allows users to download eBooks unlimited uh, with multi-user access and with no restrictions on digital rights management. And if, I, you know, these might not be, you know, lingo that you're familiar with uh, unless you're like in the academia landscape out there. But these business models are really friendly to libraries and university presses. And because of that, like they're, it's doing really well. And that brings me to the to the second um, part of your question, uh, ebook marketing and why I think it's important. So I've had um, I've had the pleasure to work with one of the big five publishing houses out there, which is Hachette. But I've also had the pleasure to work with a small publishing house, Starbright Books. Uh, it's a children's publishing house. They're based in Cambridge. And what I noticed is while the big publishing houses, you know, they have the capacity, they have the medium to handle ebook marketing and ebook sales. So they do it. They do it by themselves, which is good. It's great. But the smaller publishing houses, whether it's trade or academics, they don't have the kind of technology or they don't see the potential in ebook marketing. And I think that's where we're making such a huge mistake because that's where monopolies like Amazon comes into the picture and they take away the ebook sales only because we don't see that potential there and we're not tapping into it and, or we're not giving enough resources as we should. And because of that, what, what is Amazon doing? It's basically just taking away sales for the content that we create. You know, Amazon cannot create content of its own, but it's taking away the sales of content that we create. And so that's precisely why I think the smaller publishing houses, they really need to focus on ebook marketing because there's such a large audience out there for it. And like, there's a lot of potential there. And if it's done the right way, it can bring in a lot of numbers. It can bring in a lot of revenue. And I think that's just, that's something that for, for some reason, publishers are terrified of ebook marketing, or I don't know what it is, but uh, the places that I've worked in previously, they don't seem to want to invest so much in it. And I think that's a mistake. And I think that's something that with, especially with, you know, the millennials out there, millennials out there, we're so familiar with technology and we know how to handle everything e-way. And so I think that's something that we really need to tap into. Well, that definitely clarified a lot for me on e-marketing and the role of DeGreuter's Pay Partnership, because I guess I didn't even realize the state of academic presses. I'm so surprised to hear how Stanford University is doing and trying to stay afloat. Um, as somebody in publishing, I'm surprised that I don't know that. And I wish that uh, people in publishing more holistically would look at the success of academic publishers because they are so important in their content. It's not fluffy. It's important stuff. And like you said, it's years and years of research. And a lot of this mm -hmm. seems to be about conservation because you did mention that general interest, small scale publishers like Starbright or other small ones, mm -hmm. um, e-marketing and a big push toward the sales of e-books would help them gain more revenue. And that's all great for them. But yeah. for academic presses who are already trying to stay afloat with their print sales, mm -hmm. this is all about sustainability. Yeah. So I definitely see a need in the publishing market 
like the paid partnership with DeGroyter. And I'm glad that I know about that now because as a publishing graduate student, I'm trying my hardest to get this holistic view of publishing. And mm -hmm. a lot of that does have to do with issues in publishing and things like Amazon, of course. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, get into, I'll get into Amazon, but it sounds like this is a great battle against what is, Amazon yeah. is doing toward the publishing it community. Is, it definitely is. This is where we're taking ebook sales and we're keeping it in-house. You know, we're not, we're not ready to give it out to any monopoly out there. We're keeping it in-house and we're doing a really good job at it. Yeah, and just speaking a little bit more about Amazon, uh, over at Houghton Mifflin's, a big title that we've had out recently is called Wild Game by Adrian Brodeur. And Amazon has been kind of a blessing and a curse because they, of course, own Audible and Kindle, and they're doing a lot of marketing on their own for Wild Game on Audible, and that's gaining a lot of attention just toward the title itself, which will drive sales toward other uh, media for the book. Just the fact that there's an Audible commercial on television that has Wild Game up and center, front and center, that will just gain general awareness of the book and people will buy the print version just because they've seen that title, which is great. But then on the other hand, when you're doing your ebook marketing, one of the biggest players in ebooks is Kindle. So it kind of feels like a killer that you're doing all of this work only for people to still be driven to Amazon. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, Amazon at this point, those sales aren't necessary for publishers because it's the number one place that people are going to buy these books. But um, I don't know. I feel like a lot of us are just getting the sour feeling that we are putting in that work for Amazon to get those huge mm -hmm. cuts of revenue. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry for that little rant about Amazon on my end. But, I, th okay. but I, th I think that um, unless you're working for Amazon or you're an a Amazon sales rep, I think a lot of us <laughs> do, do go on these Amazon yeah. rants. <laughs> Um, but as far as Kindle goes, because that's a huge player for ebooks, like I'd said, um, is that something that you're dealing with? Are these books that you were marketing being sold on Kindle and some of that revenue going toward Amazon? Mm -hmm. um, I'm just curious about your general experience with Amazon. Okay, so we don't deal with any other digital platforms out there, whether it's Kindle or Nook or Audible. We have our own digital platform, and that's DeGroyder.com. Uh, so we basically digitize the content of all of our university presses. Uh, we digitize them in Romania non-destructively, and we put them out on our um, our platform. And our sales reps reaches out to, so our end users is, um, are the kind of people that we try to market to, is libraries and institutions. We basically want them to buy the content of these university presses as packages, as ebook packages, or if they have a print-on-demand um, request, then we do that. We cater to that as well. But basically, libraries and institutions is our market and our end personnel, and so we try to cater to them. Our sales reps do that. Um, but yes, to answer your question, very simple way, we do not uh, collaborate with any other digital platforms out there. We have our own digital platform. We have our, we have our own uh, production departments, and we keep everything in-house. So that way, the sales don't go out unnecessarily. Um, and the, the huge part of royalties and the sales and revenue and everything that we make, like I said, we give it back to the university press, and that's the ultimate goal. Wow, I'm surprised to hear that you guys aren't with Amazon because mm -hmm. I feel that, I mean, when Amazon first started happening, they only did books and they were considered a loss leader, mm -hmm. which means that they use books to drive customers to their page 
to then direct them to other products, which they are gaining revenue on. And at this point, Amazon is so grown that they don't need to be a loss leader with books anymore. Um, at this point, it borderline feels like bullying. So I think it's so awesome that DeGroyter is doing this and kind of paving the way to show that you can be successful and not have to give out those royalties to a company that frankly doesn't need them. Yeah. And just speaking of like paving the way and taking on the responsibility of directing the readership market in the way that in a way that is ethical and is good for publishing and is good for readers. Mm-hmm. Um, I know you used to work for Starbright, yeah. which I know it's a small sort of beloved publisher local to Boston, and they specialize in diversity in children's books, Mm -hmm. which is such an important topic and not enough people are doing it because it's not quite commercial yet. Um, But I think now that more and more publishers are showing representation Mm -hmm. for children within publishing, um, it's kind of going toward a direction where it could be commercial and it could be more um, resourceful and it wouldn't just be... um, the people of these specific demographics reading these books. I think that all these stories can be universal, and I think we can all learn something from everybody. So I know you feel very strongly about diversity in children's books, and I was hoping maybe you could talk a little about your experience with Starbright and um, what you've learned. I'm sure you know a little bit more about the matter than I do on diversity, especially within children's books. I'm so interested in. So, um, yeah, I'll just take it over to you. Yeah, John, of course. Um, So thank you for bringing up that topic. Um, Diversity in publishing is something that I feel very, very strongly about, Um, you know, being a person of color myself. So I did have um, the fortune of working at Starbright Books, which, like I mentioned before, it's a children's publishing house. Um, It's based in Cambridge, and they started in 1994. And what really uh, striked me about that house was that the founder of that house, her name is Deborah, um, she used to work at Macmillan before she started Starbright Books. And, you know, the early 90s, uh, when she introduced the idea of bringing in children of color in publishing, she was mocked at it. And she was said that nobody wants to read about children of color. You know, who wants to read about a black kid or a Native American kid? Nobody wants to read that kind of stories. But she just she stuck to her values and her morals and she knew that you know there's more to publishing than just reading about mainstream ideas um especially in children's books and she understood the virtue of you know how important it was for a child of color to see that he or she was accurately represented in the books and to know that oh you know i see a role model out there who's my skin color And she realized how important that was. And so she decided to get out of Macmillan and she started her own business, which was Starbright Books. And it's been 25 years since they've been in the run. And but what really pisses me off is that Macmillan, now that the whole topic about diversity in publishing has become so mainstream and now that it's becoming a popular topic and it's becoming a necessity in publishing Macmillan is doing it now they're bringing in children of color and they're publishing books in different languages and they're making sales out of it but what really pisses me off is the fact that Deborah has been doing this for the past 25 years this year is their 25th anniversary and they have books in 26 languages with children of color from so many different cultures and the thing is they don't get enough recognition 
recognition as they should. And that's, you know, that's, I recently had a conversation with uh, Jiong, who is um, the acquisitions editor there. And I was telling her about, basically, we were just having a discussion of about how Starbright Books needs to get a little bit more recognition. And a lot of that has to come back to marketing. And they don't have a person who's devoted to marketing. It's it's a very small publishing house. They have four employees. That's including customer care. So they really don't have a personnel devoted to marketing. And so marketing and publicity. And so that's something that they need to focus on. And they really need to bring in some sort of momentum there because the kind of work that they're doing it's incredible like imagine having to publish books in 26 languages with you know children of color from so many different cultures and races and it's just there's aside from the fact that you know it's got a lot of morals and a lot of values and so many good virtues in that whole idea it's also a lot of hard work you know you got to make sure that especially when the time that I was working there a major part of my job was to make sure that the kind of information we put in these books they are very accurate you know we're not misrepresenting any culture we're not mis- misrepresenting any kids and the kind of information that we put in there even if it's just about a festival that we're not familiar with but you know a kid in across the world is is really is it's it's a festival that's important to a kid from across the world we want to make sure that it's accurate and it's you know rightly represented so it's a lot of work that goes into that as well and I really feel like they're not getting the recognition that they deserve Um, so that was my experience working at Starbright Books and like I said um, I've been in conversation with Jiang and I we certainly did discuss that they need to bring in somebody to do the marketing and the publicity exclusively but other than that yes diversity in publishing is you know it's something that everybody needs to talk about and I know it's it you know could sometimes be an uncomfortable topic to talk about but I think that's all the more reason that we need to make it more mainstream and we need to make it a conversation that's no longer or uncomfortable and a lot of publishing houses the big five especially they are doing it now because it's becoming a topic of interest um, among the crowd but I'm sure there's a lot of other publishing houses out there who has been focusing on that as well but they don't get the recognition they deserve but um, yeah just coming back to your question it's something that's really important and it's something that really needs to be talked about and something that a lot of houses need to actually take a stand on and be like yes we not only need to write about people of color but we also need to make sure that we employ people of color in the publishing house and you know have authors be persons of color and um or you know diversity in the workplace everything all of that is equally important and i think all of that is what basically makes up a house's stands on diversity yeah and as a white male growing up reading children's and middle grade books of course i didn't see any real problem in diversity within children's books because i felt that i was being represented in books and it wasn't until i was a bit older i was in college and i was studying english and then later on publishing in graduate school and ethical publishing was really on my radar and meeting all these different people um of different ethnicities and um sexualities Mm -hmm. and different modes of thought um 
that I really realized how necessary it is. For example, at Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, there's this relatively new imprint called Versify, and it specializes in uh, diversity and representation within children's publishing. Mm -hmm. And it's run by this amazing um, author and now publisher, uh, Kwame Alexander. He's Mm -hmm. incredible. and I went to one of their launch events out in Boston, mm-hmm. and there was this beautiful moment where a black librarian stood up, and she, in the middle of his spiel, and she cut him off, and she said, Kwame, I just want to thank you because more than one of my students mm-hmm. um, at my school, she was a school librarian, have said, finally, there, there's a book like Harry Potter, yeah, but yeah. the person looks like me. Yeah. And the room was just quiet and people started applauding for just that one thing that she'd said and then for Kwame Alexander. And that was just a beautiful moment. And um, even now I do feel like something that I think is great and I kind of mentioned it earlier that it doesn't only have to be people within that specific demographic reading about that that demographic. It can be, I mean, of course, um, like people of color are forced to read um, books about white protagonists and Mm -hmm. I mean they still enjoy them it's it's not their story but they still enjoy them and likewise um white people and um cis people and straight Mm -hmm. people can still read about other demographics and enjoy it um pretty recently I was volunteering at the Boston Book Festival and there was this panel of middle grade authors um I don't think the theme was diversity but the authors happened to be diverse writing about diverse topics Mm -hmm. and um there's this one author, uh, his name is Malik Pancholi. He wrote a book called The Best at It. Mm-hmm. And it's about a gay Indian American coming out in middle school. Mm-hmm. And in my head, I thought, okay, like as a gay man, I think I would have loved that as a kid because I had never realized like you were allowed to have a gay protagonist in middle school, <laughs> which is silly because I knew I was gay in middle school. Yeah. So why not be allowed to write about that yeah. and read that? Mm-hmm. Um, but then I thought, all right, that's such a great idea. Um, but it's definitely not commercial. It's not going to sell because there aren't a ton of gay Indian American kids. Yeah, that's true. And then I saw, well, there are, but um, that's not the main demographic that is going to be buying the book um, because it's going to be parents buying books for kids. And as a parent, you usually don't know when your middle schooler is gay. A lot of times it comes out later. So it's like such a niche demographic to be uh, commercializing. But then I saw at the end of that event, every person that was basically in the line for that panel was in line for his book. Mm-hmm. And they were, there were girls, there were boys, there were um, white parents. And I heard a conversation of a parent saying, um, yeah, I have a couple of sons and yeah, he reads, a, uh, they read a ton about um, straight white guys. And, um, while they probably won't connect a ton to the protagonist, I think it'll be great for them to read it to get another view. And um, I try and make sure that they're reading about diverse students or diverse protagonists because um, it just makes them a better, more empathetic person. And um, why can't you enjoy something just because you don't directly relate to that person? So I think that the fact that places like Starbright are taking these chances mm-hmm. and um, kind of going against the grain for what they feel is right and what they feel the readership wants yeah. to be seeing, mm-hmm. even though it's not commercial. Um, that was just a fun couple of moments of payoff where I see that, all right, like it's starting to definitely become commercialized and right. you can see it like from the ground. And even in bookstores, I used to be a bookseller. Um, I had people always asking me for books about children's books about um black families. Mm -hmm. And then I was horrified to see 
that almost every single one was something negative. It was about overcoming something. And many, many mothers wanted books that um, they were like, no, I just want there to be a black character and I want it to be a happy kids book. I don't want, I don't want him to feel like he's constantly overcoming something. And then I took it over to our children's lead who like knows more titles in that category than I have. And she immediately shook her head. And then she said, there's just not enough titles for us to have a section on that. And um, she's like, I could probably think of a few, but there's not going to be a ton, unfortunately here. And that was just a horrible moment. And it kind of made me want to study up and see what diversity publishers are out there so that way the next time that a customer wanted to have a section of diverse books that wasn't negative and about overcoming something um, I had an answer and I think that it's important for people in publishing and booksellers and um, writers to really see those narratives of what are these diverse families wanting because it's not always negative so um, and I'm just curious about you like what kinds of books for you impacted you as a kid and um, of course, I'm sure there's a reason that you're interested in diverse children's books and started working at Star right I'm wondering um, like what did you read as a kid and what kind of characters did you connect with did you connect with um, like a white female character or did it matter to you if she was a character that looked like you um, yeah so I'm wondering about your take so when I grew up the kind of stories that I read were so mainstream. There was no, there was nothing, you know, now that I think back, there were no books that where I saw a kid of color in, in, you know, the kind of fairy tale books that I read. It was very, the usual mainstream books, um, all um, white characters. And I never, you know, I never realized that there was something missing there. But then as I grew up and as I started watching all these movies and started reading more, and then I think there was this one time that I read a book about, uh, I think it was Princess Sultana. Um, I read the book and then I'm like, hey, so, uh, okay, a little bit backstory about myself. I am an Indian by origin, but I grew up in the Middle East in, in in a little island called Bahrain. So I resonate with people from the Middle East and, you know, people from India as well. So this was the first time that I read a book from somebody from the Middle East. And I'm like, oh, wait, okay, I guess this kind of book sells, you know, it's out there and it's a book and, you know, it's sort of about my people. And I'm like, okay, like, it's an actual book and it was published by St. Martin's Press, which is an imprint of Macmillan, I think. And, And I'm like, okay, like, this is this is something this this happens. And as I grew up and I started realizing that, you know what, this is this should be the norm. It shouldn't be something that I'm surprised at. And it shouldn't be something that's like, oh, wow, okay, these books sell. No, it should just be the norm. And everybody should get to see their accurate representations. And one of the things that really matters to me is that when an immigrant travels to another country that's not theirs, you know, suppose, you know, um, my parents, you know, suppose, for example, they come down over here and I want them to be able to read to me stories in their language, you know, and not have to struggle with the dilemma of whether or not they should read to their kid in English or in their own language. And so that's where I think it's so important, you know, for parents to know that they can read to their kids in their language. Mm -hmm. And most importantly, they can show their kids that, you know, there's there's a face that's similar to yours. Just like the story, you know, you said before about the librarian raising that quote from that kid. And and so that's why I think it's so important. But also like, it brings about the other question that, a point that you raised before, 
um, having diversity just for the sake of diversity is not is not what it's about. Like, you know, you shouldn't put minority characters in a position that compromises them or that basically reinforces you know, don't put them in a stereotypical position in a stereotypical character and basically reinforce all that notions that you have of them you know like a gay american indian kid um you know obviously you know he would go through a lot of trauma at his house like how any kids would but to show that oh it's so much more harder because it's different in his culture and it's frowned upon or you know putting a muslim in a very bad notion or a very bad character in a very bad portrayal like those are things that you do and then you say that that brings about diversity in your book but it also is portraying them in a very negative manner and that's something that's not okay you know you got to put them out of the box you got to write about them as you would write about any normal character you know and i get it it's important to talk about their culture and how it's different from mainstream um you know uh, mainstream characters that's that's important but i would say try not to do it in a very negative manner in such a way that you know the person of color who's reading that would be like hey like you know that's not me and that's not my life and you don't get to talk about it like that so there's so many dimensions to this and i think um putting in a lot of research putting in a lot of work would really help um yeah I know I think if there's one job that kind of promoting diversity in publishing has it is to unbox these complex people um that are, they're not all alike just because they're in one demographic. I mean um also at the, at the same panel I was talking about that Malik Pincholi was at there's an author named EB Saboy and it was her first middle grade book but um the title was called My Life as an Ice Cream Sandwich and it's about um the title comes because it's about a young black girl who acts white um actually funny the title was supposed to be My Life as an Oreo but they had copyright issues <laughs> <laughs> so it became My Life as an Ice Cream Sandwich but um the concept brought kind of a different aspect of diversity to my mind because mm-hmm. the way that this character wasn't was diverse wasn't just because she was black it was because she was a young black girl that was nerdy and she wanted i forgot if it was like a space engineer or an astronaut mm-hmm. i didn't read it but um that's what the author is talking about is how as a black woman sometimes people are surprised that she's full of these nerdy little fun facts about science um she's a big women in stem advocate mm-hmm. so i think even just thinking about diversity in thought and diversity in, in ambition as both um her being a female and being black yeah. um in stem <clears throat> i think just the idea of showing one demographic in a in a light in which they aren't normally represented because of course young black girls could easily be interested in stem and they do amazing things in stem um but i feel that they're not really shown that way in literature i feel like a lot of that is nonfiction yeah. and i think if you show that in fiction it's going to show every demographic that they can be anything and i just think the act of not stereotyping. It I feel like we don't even have to actively do anything. I think we have to just stop actively stereotyping. Yeah, exactly. Just stop actively stereotyping. <laughs> that's all. Just write about them like how you would with any normal character. 
Yeah, and I know we're talking about a lot of uh, diversity within children's books, but of course we're both adults, so I'm sure not all that we read are children's books, even though there's nothing wrong with being an adult <laughs> reading children's books. I, I love Lemony Snicket. I still read that. <laughs> but um, I'm curious. Well, I know because... Um, we're both in publishing and I'm a student, so we don't get a ton of time to read what we want outside of our publishing houses and outside of our programs. But are you reading? Do you have time to read on your own? And what are you reading? I'm just, I'm curious to see what you're kind of filling up your time with when it comes to reading, because I know that time is so precious because, (laughs) because I know you're kind of forced to read all of this other material that you didn't yourself pick. So, you know, being a grad, I was a grad student until recently, and you know now I'm working, and like you know how pressed we are for time, <laughs> and how it's hard <laughs> to want to be able to read for pleasure anymore. I don't even know what that's like, but um, but I'm rereading one of my favorite books right now. Um, it's called The Beautiful Assassin by Michael White. Uh, it's one of my favorite books out there. It's about a Russian Soviet sniper uh, who's a woman. Um, and, you know, at the time of the war, it talks a little bit about the kind of difficulties she faced when she wanted to get into the army at a time when every woman went in, went to be a nurse, you know, at the time of the war. But she wanted to be a sniper. So obviously, obviously, she was mocked and ridiculed and whatnot. Um, but she proved everybody wrong and she went on to become one of the most the, the highest recorded sniper uh, with the most number of kills. Um, and it also talks about this beautiful friendship between her and um, the then first lady, who's Eleanor Roosevelt. Um, and, you know, even if they, they obviously they never spoke the same language um, and they always had like a translator in between them. But regardless of that, they had such a beautiful friendship and it talks about that. Um, and it talks about um, the character's name is uh, Tatiana. Um, and it's just, it's a historical fiction. Uh, so there's like a little bit of facts to it, but there's also like a little bit of storytelling to it. Um, and the original person's name is, I might be saying it wrong, uh, so please forgive me, but I think her name is Ludmila, Ludmila Pavlichenko. Um, and it's just, you know, it just, it's just a beautiful book. Um, so that's what I'm currently rereading again, uh, just because I love that book so much. Uh, but other than that, um, I have a lot of galleys that I stole from Hachette. <laughs> well, I mean, you can you can take away a lot of galleys while you're working there. Um, so I have all all of that stacked up um, on my desk, uh, and I will get to it at some point uh, when things start to slow down, or you know, when I take a vacation. Uh, but yeah, that's, um, I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to the time where I can just like take my time out and read. And, uh, but what about you, John? Uh, tell me the kind of books that you are reading right now. Oh God. So yeah, right now. So right now I'm still in grad school <laughs> and I am at full time. I'm an intern at Houghton Mifflin Harcourt in their publicity, mm-hmm. um, general interest department. Um, so I'm reading a lot of those titles, but, um, Oh my God, I'm just reading so much. But I am, I'm reading like a few books here and there. I always work on a few books at a time. And just because I'm always on the go, I listen to a lot of books. So uh, yeah. hopefully it counts if I'm listening. It um, really does. I'm a little behind the times. I'm in the middle of, uh, well, I'm about to finish up Ready Player One because uh-huh. um, I saw the movie and I loved it. And I'm like, you know what? I've been reading all of these serious books. I just want like a YA and I want it to be fun. Yep, and yep. I don't know what I don't know why I feel like I keep reading books with female protagonists because like I mean I love it like I I love 
I mean, I don't Strong connect. I, yeah, yeah okay. I don't know. I don't know. I'm just drawn to them. No, and that's I, good. That's and, a good thing. We need we need more of that. You know, we need more men out there who's very appreciative of characters like that. Well, and you know what? I think I'm sorry. I'm getting a little off topic. You know where I think that stems from is because, like, my favorite genre is middle grade. Mm-hmm. It that had such an impact on me as a kid. And like I said, I just said that the series of unfortunate events was like yeah. it's like my thing. Yeah. And there's not a ton of middle grade slash YA anymore with guy protagonists just because like when you're younger it's you're as a young guy like when i was in middle school and high school like people made fun of me for reading so like not as many young guys read i feel like they come into it later um and i feel like because my love of reading started when i was younger Mm -hmm. most of those books were female protagonists so i'm still drawn to them like right now um i so sorry i just finished reading Circe by Madeline Miller, uh-huh. which, oh my God, I'm in love with it. Mm-hmm. Um, part of that's because I took many, many years of Latin and I'm just really interested in Greek tragedy and Greek mythology. And it was kind of like an adult, very literary um, retelling of um, the character Circe from the Odyssey. Mm-hmm. And it was beautiful. But um, I'm starting to try and push myself to read more books with male protagonists mm-hmm. because Part of part of it is because I've been listening to Ready Player One, and I'm like, oh my god, I connect with this so much more than a lot of the female protagonist um, books that I read um, when I was reading middle school fiction. Um, so I think, well, like I said, I'm finishing up Ready Player One, so I think I need to. I do have a long list of ones that are to come, but because I love Madeline Miller so much, I want to read another one of her. And lucky for me, the one that she wrote before Cersei, where she got famous from, is Song of Achilles. And it talks, um, oh my god, I don't know like all the characters because I haven't read it yet. <laughs> but um, it talk, it's about Achilles and um, his male partner, and it's about like nice. it's about their relationship. So I think I think um, I'm going to really connect with it one because I love her writing. It's super literary, and she, oh my god, everything she writes is just beautiful. Mm-hmm. And I love the concept of um, retellings of Greek tragedy. Right. But um, and the fact that it is, I think it'll be interesting to hear Madeline Miller take on a male voice. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, like I said, I didn't get a ton of, like, gay male representation when I was younger. And now that I have access to that representation as an adult, I feel like a lot of it is, like, I mean, I think this technically is a love story, but a lot of it is, like, cutesy love stories or romance. Mm-hmm. And that's not my genre. Like, I didn't read Love, Simon. I didn't read Call Me By Your Name just because that's not what I'm into. Like, I'd rather read, like, a person doing a cool thing that happens to be gay. And I think that, I think, I'm not sure because I haven't read it. And that's what I'm hoping Song of Achilles is going to be. And I'm, oh my God, I'm so excited to read it though. I I got to see her. I'm excited for you now. (laughs) I got to see her last year at Boston Book Festival about Circe um, when I was volunteering there. But um, yeah, everyone's recommending Song of Achilles to me. All right, so I know this um, episode is all over the place in topic, but Anne is uh, very diverse within publishing. She's had experience in, di- in diversity in children's yeah. publishing and ebook marketing, and she has experience with academic presses. So um, I don't know. I feel like we got a good overview of what Anne's, so. of what Anne's <laughs> passionate about and what she's kicking butt in in oh, publishing. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, it was fun. I've got to have classes with her, and I'm like a proud little mom over here seeing <laughs> and do amazing things oh, yeah. <laughs> within within Boston. It's it's great to be doing amazing things really in publishing in Boston really because I feel like Boston gets looked over, but Boston has got some really amazing publishers like DeGroyton. Really um, but, yeah, so 
Um, let me know what you guys are interested in hearing next. Right now, we, we've covered ebook marketing and academic press, kind of a couple in one. Um, and anything's fair game. We have acquisitions, publicity, subrights, magazine, electronic publishing. So I am curious to hear what you guys want to hear. Um, whoever's listening, aka my professor and my mom, <laughs> if, if you're listening to this when this first goes up. But um, awesome. Did you have any final, any final last words, Anne, or any, anything you want the audience to take away? <laughs> well, I hope, um, like you said, John, that I was able to convey like a good holistic view about publishing, um, especially academic or ebooks. Um, or even trade publishing. And I think we went to a lot about um, a little bit of all of that and diversity and everything. So it's all matters that's very important to me. So I'm really, really thankful to you that you gave me such an opportunity so I could speak here. Um, I'm very happy about that. And yes, uh, I've known John for about two years now. We've had a couple of classes together and I'm really glad you're doing this. Like um, this is such a great opportunity for a lot of people like me to come here and talk about matters that's important to them. And not just that, you know, it just, it gives the listeners, whoever they are, a really good idea about what really goes on in publishing, you know, in the different sectors and everything. So I think it's a great job that you're doing this. I'm so happy for you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. And by no means do I feel authoritative (laughs) enough to be able to be doing this. I like to think of myself as a lowbrow person in a highbrow field and I think that's <laughs> I think you're doing an amazing job at it hopefully so. that's a fresh take because you know what <laughs> I don't know I'm not always about that highbrow lit sometimes sometimes <laughs> sometimes I want to be around people that are totally um not, not to take on Anna Ferris's <laughs> unqualified podcast idea but I would I would say this is kind of the equivalent to um I'm an unqualified publisher talking about publishing news. <laughs> All right. well, I think you're qualified enough. You've got a lot of experience on your hands, so this is good stuff. Thank you. Well, again, let me know what you want to hear about next time, and I'll see you then.